Today's sermon text is on a miracle of Jesus that likely sounds familiar to you. The gospel reading appointed for this Sunday, the seventh Sunday after Trinity, is Mark 8, verses 1 to 8. And in this passage, Jesus is in a desolate place with his disciples and a multitude of hungry people. Jesus desires to feed them. The disciples question how this can be done. A few loaves of bread and fish are presented, and Jesus blesses them, breaks them, and gives them to his disciples to distribute to the thousands of people who are gathered there with him. Everyone eats their fill and is satisfied, and the disciples take up baskets full of leftover pieces. This is a familiar story from Jesus's life. And in fact, you may be experiencing some deja vu. Pastor, didn't you preach on this back in Lent? And indeed, back on the fourth Sunday in Lent, I preached on that Sunday's gospel reading, which was not this passage, but John 6, verses 1 to 15. And it was also an account of Jesus feeding a multitude of hungry people in the wilderness with a few loaves, some, some fish, taking up baskets full of leftover pieces. So what's going on here? Why does the lectionary assign this same story more than once during the church year? And why would I preach it again? Full disclosure, this is a bit of a trick question. Because today's gospel reading is not the same account that we considered back on the fourth Sunday in Lent. I say that not just because that was John and this is Mark, but because that passage from John 6 was Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, which Mark also records in Mark chapter 6. But Mark 8 is Jesus' feeding of the 4,000. If you ask me, Why, pastor, are you preaching on Jesus feeding a multitude of people in the wilderness again? I would ask you, why do the gospel writers tell us two stories of Jesus feeding a multitude of people in the wilderness within the same book, just a couple chapters apart? You see, the Bible is no ordinary book. Every other book you read is necessarily fallible and mixed with error. But Holy Scripture, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, is the very Word of God. And so it is absolutely true, powerful, life-giving, and sufficient for all that you need for salvation. That means that in this book, there are no wasted words. There are no superfluous stories, meaningless repetition. Rather, all scripture, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Lord has a blessing for you this morning in Mark 8, verses 1 to 9. He is offering you life and grace through Christ, 
So be very careful how you listen. Don't say, oh, this sounds like something I've heard before. I'm just going to tune out. It's not a good way of listening to a sermon, nor is it a good way of reading your Bible. The Lord has something for you in the particularity of every text you read or hear preached. So listen with attentiveness, with expectation and faith. It must be admitted that this account of Jesus' feeding of the 4,000 has striking similarities with the feeding of the 5,000. And I've mentioned some of those already. The basic pattern and picture here is the same of Jesus feeding hungry people in the wilderness with loaves and fish and picking up baskets of leftover pieces. But there are several unique features, both within and without of the sermon text, that make this account different. And it's those unique features that I want us to consider together this morning. The first unique feature to the feeding of the 4,000 is that this account takes place outside of Israel in a region of the Gentiles. In Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30, we read of how Jesus went to the Gentile regions of Tyre and Sidon. These were Gentile territories beyond Israel's northernmost border. Chapter 7, verse 31 then tells us that Jesus went back to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. To understand this, we have to understand something about the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was in fact a lake, which is why I sometimes call the lake the sea. It's totally fine to do that. Uh, The Sea of Galilee was in fact a lake, and it was not unlike Lake Michigan in this respect. If you're on the western side of Lake Michigan, what state are you in? The best state, right? (laughs) The dairy state, uh, Wisconsin. But if you go to the eastern side, what state are you in? Michigan. They're okay. There's actually an invisible line that goes down Lake Michigan saying which side is the Wisconsin side and which side is the Michigan side. Similarly, the Sea of Galilee had split ownership, as it were. The north and western sides of the sea were part of the Jewish region of Galilee, while the western part of the lake was part of a Gentile region known as the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. And Jesus was in that Gentile region in verses 31 to 37 of chapter 7, which lead us right up to Mark 8, verse 1. So while the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 may seem very similar, one important key difference between them is where Jesus is doing it. The feeding of the 5,000 takes place in Galilee, on the Galilean side. The feeding of the 4,000 on the Gentile, Decapolis side. Where Jesus is doing the miracle and who he is ministering to. Jesus came first for the people of God, the covenanted chosen people of the Lord, the Jews. Among them, he lived and ministered as their Messiah. He came to them in fulfillment of the promises made to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, 
that there would be a savior who would arise to save his people from their sin. Born as the root of Jesse and offspring of David, who would rule and reign over them forever. But Jesus' mission wasn't only to terminate on the Jewish people. He came as their Messiah and Savior, yes. He came to deliver them from their sin in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. And he came to offer himself to them on conditions of faith and repentance, yes. But the word of the Lord, speaking of Christ through the prophet Isaiah, had already foretold so many years ago in Isaiah 49 that it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved, the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. It's too small a thing that Jesus would only come for the Jews. No, he's going to be a light for the nations. That salvation will go all over the world. So when Jesus was in Tyre and Sidon in Mark 7, he was being a light to those Gentile regions, even in this initial largely Jewish-focused stage of his ministry. Even then, he went to the Gentile regions. In fact, in Mark 7, we read of a Syrophoenician woman who comes to him, asking him to cast a demon out of her daughter. And Jesus' reply may seem startling. Verse 27 of Mark 7, he says, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus is talking about the people of Israel as the children of God and her and the Gentiles as dogs and outsiders. It's a hard saying, but he said this to test her faith and what would her response be? And she replies, actually, with those wonderful words that we echo in one of our communion prayers. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Jesus heals her daughter for that statement and for the great faith she has shown. The children must be fed first, Jesus says, but then the bread will go out to the Gentiles. First, the feeding of the 5,000 in Galilee, but then the feeding of the 4,000 in the Decapolis. He came down like true manna, giving life to the Lord's languishing people in the wilderness. But he doesn't stop there. For he is the true bread of God who comes down and gives life to the world. Brothers and sisters, this points us to the universality of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Jesus is not limited or restricted to one particular segment or group of people. You can group people however you like, by ethnicity, race, nationality, class. The gospel of Jesus is relevant for all kinds of people. You have never met someone in your life for whom the gospel is irrelevant, for whom the gospel is unavailable, inapplicable. The Lord Christ is the light of the nations as well as the glory of his people Israel. One implication we can draw from this among many. There is no room here, friends, for racism in the church of Christ. 
There is no room here for any denigration, disrespect, or lack of love towards another on account of their ethnicity, race, skin color. If the gospel is, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, for all peoples, then this means that the Lord Jesus loved with a dying, self-sacrificial love people of all races, ethnicities, and nationalities. And do you know what our Savior Christ says to you and me? As I have loved you, so you should love one another. Right? Jesus died for this person, and you're going to denigrate them because of their, their ethnicity? This doesn't make sense. So racism has no place in the church of Christ. We also see that the gospel is a powerful unifying force. Think about this. This morning, in churches all across the world, hundreds of thousands of millions of people are worshiping Jesus in languages you don't know, in cultures drastically different from ours. Why is that the case? How could it be that that is the case right now, this morning, today? Because Jesus didn't just feed the 5,000. He fed the 4,000. He went to the other side of the lake. He brought his grace and salvation to all peoples. And so we can say with the 24 elders in Revelation, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them kings and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That's the first unique feature of the feeding of the 4,000, this Gentile focus. A second unique feature is found in an emphasis on Jesus' compassion. Look at verses 1 to 2. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. How often is it that you go a full day without eating? What about two days? Can you remember the last time you went three days without eating? Imagine how hungry and faint you would likely be. And yet these crowds are so drawn to Jesus that they're foregoing their own food just to be with him. And Jesus recognizes this. And what does he do? He takes the initiative. He calls his disciples to him and says to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus' compassion is also mentioned. But in Mark's account, that is not with regard to the people being hungry. But it is with regard to them, uh, him first encountering the crowd. And he recognizes that they are sheep without a shepherd. And so he has compassion on them. And what does he do in that compassion? Verse 34 of Mark 6, he began to teach them many things. Okay. Jesus uh, sees a spiritual need. 
And he shows himself to be the true shepherd after God's own heart that Jeremiah described, who feeds the people with knowledge and understanding. But here in the feeding of the 4,000 in Mark 8, there's a different focus. Jesus' compassion isn't said to be prompted by their spiritual needs, but by their physical needs. They're hungry. It's been three days since they've eaten. Jesus cares about their bodily health and well-being. He factors it into his consideration of possible courses of action. Think of it, the Lord of the universe incarnate, saying, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, right? Factoring that in. He takes note of special circumstances, and some of them have come from far away. If the feeding of the 5,000 accentuates Jesus' compassion on people's spiritual needs, his feeding of the 4,000 accentuates Jesus' compassion on people's physical needs. Have you ever been in a Bible study or a group discussion that ends with prayer requests? And then a bunch of people ask for prayer for bodily ailments that they have or for people they know. Have you ever been bothered by that? Have you ever thought to yourself, is this very spiritual that we're just sharing a bunch of prayer requests about people's health, bodily problems? Christian, the compassion of Christ and the love of God extends to the whole of you. Jesus knows and cares for your needs, both of body and of soul, your every need. The salvation that he's bringing to you will include both aspects of your being. He loves you. And love is directed toward the whole person, all that belongs to them. True love seeks the full good of the beloved in body and soul. Jesus loves us to the uttermost. He takes note not only of our spiritual needs, but even our physical ones. And he promises the day is coming when we will have new resurrected bodies that do not decay or suffer or perish. The Lord is renewing and restoring his creation. There will be a new heavens and new earth. So the first unique feature of the text is the Gentile focus. The second unique feature is the emphasis on compassion for bodily needs, not just spiritual needs. Both and. The third and final unique feature that we will consider today is the disciples' hard-heartedness. Even with the differences that we've been exploring between these two feedings, there are still a lot of similarities. So much so that one question we may have when we, when we read this account, if we're honest, is how can the disciples be so dumb? Right? In verse 4, after Jesus mentions uh, that he has compassion on the crowd because they're hungry, the disciples say, how can one feed uh, these people with bread here in this desolate place? They are once again, like they did in the feeding of the 5,000, looking to their own strength, their own provisions, their own resources, rather than trusting in Christ's. This Christ who has already multiplied bread and fish to feed thousands in the wilderness of Galilee. How is it that the disciples can still fail to see that Jesus has the ability and the will to provide? 
If that weren't bad enough, it happens again in the verses just after our passage. Jesus in uh, Mark 8, 11 to 13, has a brief back and forth with some Pharisees. And when he is again alone with his disciples as they're sailing across the lake, he tells them, using a metaphor, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. There he's referring to the the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod's teaching, that their teaching is bad and it can infiltrate and leaven the whole lump. So beware of their teaching. But the disciples misunderstand. They don't catch the metaphor. And they think he's talking about physical leaven. And then they remember, we forgot to bring bread. We only have one loaf. And they begin discussing among themselves how they don't have bread. So it's not just two times that the disciples worry and doubt Jesus' ability and willingness to provide for them what they need. It's three times. And Jesus rebukes them in verse 17. Beginning in verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? The third and final unique feature of this text is the disciples' hard-heartedness. They still don't get it. It's just not clicking. They aren't really recognizing the fullness of who Jesus is. They aren't trusting in his willingness and ability to provide for them all that they need. And this, even in spite of recent instances of miraculous provision. Friends, If you and I are honest with ourselves, we are not so different from the disciples here. We can wonder, be confused at first, maybe kind of laugh at them a bit. But don't we do the same thing? We have come to know the Lord's grace and mercy in Christ. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and faithful to us. We have been forgiven, justified, adopted, sealed with the Spirit And yet, we still sin. Sin still dwells within. We all stumble in many ways. Unbelief is mixed with faith in our hearts, causing us to cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And even though the Lord, in his abundant mercy, has delivered us out of slavery through the waters of baptism and set us on the path to the promised land, you and I can still struggle with the same thought that Israel did. Maybe the God who delivered us this far did so just to let us die in the wilderness. Maybe there won't be any magic bread from heaven coming down. Maybe no water will come out of this rock. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? 
And yet the Lord Jesus is merciful and patient with us despite our sin. When he rebukes or chides, he does so only to call us back to a fuller and deeper faith in him. He calls us back to reality, to an open heart and mind, to eyes that can see all of his faithfulness, goodness, mercy, and grace that he has shown and that he will assuredly show to the end. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. He is the true bread who has come down from heaven to give himself for the life of the world. He is the rock that was struck so that rivers of living water could flow out to refresh his erring and weary and complaining people. He is the good shepherd who leads us beside still waters and restores our souls. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for he is with us. He is the generous host who indeed spreads a table in the wilderness, even in the presence of our enemies. And he is himself the feast that is spread, the paschal lamb by whose blood we are delivered. He is the true Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, who will most assuredly take us in to the land of promise. Let us pray. O Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Grant that we would trust in your goodness and your mercy towards us. May we not doubt your ability or willingness to provide us all that we need. Strengthen us in this faith. In Jesus' name, amen.